0: We are uh, continuing in our series, um, our, this we believe, it's just a basic doctrine series. It's our third, work, third week in the series. This week we're going to be studying from Ephesians chapter uh, 1, verses 3 through 14. I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip your Bible open to that. We'll be uh, spending most of our time there this morning. Uh, this is our third week in this series, as I mentioned, and we're in our third week of studying about God and, and st- seeking to know the God who has revealed Himself in the Scripture. And we're not after seminary-level degrees. That's not what we're after. I'm not trying to trying to dig at this to the point that we could all uh, say, oh, got a master's-level degree now. and That's not what we're after. We're just really seeking to get to the essence or the essentials of these doctrines that unite us As a local body of believers, the things that we agree upon together that unite us as a church, but more than that, the essentials unite us to the big C church or the church that has existed and that that exists across the world today and the church that's existed uh, in the past and into the future as we are united together in Christ. Now, so far, I said, we've, in our third week on our study of God, we, we've studied God's existence. Not so much that He exists. I showed you statistically that most people generally believe that there is some God or some higher power. The problem is not proving God's existence to people, not, not by and large mostly the, the issue we face is, does the God of the Bible exist? And, and I showed you, we've studied through that, and we talked through the fact that the God who revealed himself in the Bible is the God who is. And last week, we studied God's Trinitarian nature. He's always existed as one God, and that, and, and that one God has always eternally uh, revealed himself as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is fully God, and, and each person is eternally distinct. And I know, we, we, we talked about it in our community group last on Wednesday, we talked about it last Sunday, I know that's beyond us, how does that work? I don't know, uh, I'll just be quite honest, I don't know, but I do know that's what the Bible depicts, that's what the Bible teaches us, uh, that's who God is, that's how God has shown himself to us. And today, we're going to consider God's attributes when we talk about God's attributes, we're talking about his character, his nature, his personality, if you will. Um, I want to be cautious with that. But, but that's the way that we think about him, the way that we know him, the way that we believe he is. And we don't develop these traits based off of our experience in the world. And it's unfortunate that this is the way most people would, would develop their view of who God is or how God acts, is what they think he should do or how they've experienced some situation or circumstance God has revealed these things in his word. And so that's what we're we're pursuing to understand. That's what we're pursuing to see. And so instead of me just sitting here and talking about it, let me just read the passage. We'll pray and then we'll study it. And we'll see what the Lord's word has to say about who the Lord says he is instead of me saying who he is. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Well, Father, help us know you. You gave us your word. You revealed to yourself specifically in your word so that we could know you. Spirit, lead us into truth as we were told you would do. Would you work in our hearts now that we might be able to better, more rightly respond to you? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you believe there is a God? Yes, I do. I believe in a creator of... Sorts. Um, God is just one name. I don't necessarily believe in God. I believe in a higher being. I guess. Believe about. I believe that He's there to take care of us and here to help us. And if not that in your life, you're not going to go very far. Whoever, whatever it is, has a lot of control over us and our lives. I don't really know. <laughs> There's too much stuff in this world that we just can't know. God is the supreme creator. To me, it's probably someone that. Uh, look to for advice and guidance mostly. Have you ever read the Bible? Um, I took a Bible as literature class in college, but that's about as far as I got into it. Do you read the Bible? Uh, no, no I, uh, I'm skeptical of organized religions run by men. It was written a very, very long time ago, so the wording in some parts of it can be taken out of context because, of course, the context is way different now. People have it did some changes in it. You know what I mean? But the word, I, I still think it's fine. Well, I believe that the Bible is God's word and it's perfect. The overarching messages that it sends are good, and that's those are the things that can be taken away from it. So, do you believe that there's a heaven? I'm not 100% sure on that one. I, I, I would hope, I would hope so. I try to live my life in such a way that, you know, if there is a judgment and an afterlife and whatnot, they're going to look positively on me. I believe if you. To, to, to commandments as best you can just do the very best you can and try put the effort forward then you will have an afterlife until you get there you, you won't know right that's the that's a part of it how would you define what sin is do you believe there is such a thing as sin yeah I think you know things that harm the people around you for your own benefit are sinful you know there's no hierarchy of bad or wrong to me it's all wrong but by the same token just not let you be judged because we're all fallible I don't think by nature man is sinful. And this is just me. I'm not too familiar ex- with exactly what the Bible says about sin, to be perfectly honest with you. But I don't think by nature man is sinful. I, I would, yeah. So I would say no, basically, to that question. Okay. If you have the answer, <laughs> I would like to know. That video opens with two questions. Do you believe in God? What do you believe about him? And over and over, maybe with the exception of a couple well, the exception of maybe one person, we didn't get to hear from her very often. They were all basing their view of who God is, of how they feel, and from there, everything fell apart. Their views of afterlife, their views of uh, what sin is, and how to define it. In fact, if you notice, the, their definition of sin had nothing to do with God had everything to do with how we treat each other. There's a problem with that. that God's not just some higher power who, who created and then, and, and then now is just sitting around waiting to, to give us some little blessing like Santa in the sky. That he, he's not a puppet that's pulling on strings as if he uh, is the puppeteer, you know, and he's just making things happen. He's not our eternally situated dear Abby who's waiting on us to write him a letter so that he can give us some good advice. And Don't take that to mean I think dear Abby gives good advice. It just, it's just where we turn. Maybe some of you don't even know who dear Abby is. You can look her up, <laughs> but don't listen to her. I don't know. Maybe she gives better advice than I realize. It was a statement at the end of the video that kind of just it left... It just haunted me since I first watched it. If you have the answer, I'd like to know. Now, he's referencing sin. He's, he's concerned about, are we naturally sinful? Like, that's the, that's the thing. But it's sad to me. It's sad to me that we're living in a day and age where we have more access to the Scripture, that we have more access to God's Word, and to know who the God of the Bible is, and yet we... By and large, don't know him. And because we don't know God, we're confused and we're wrong about virtually everything else. Here at the way we, we we unite around this truth. We believe God is exactly who the Bible reveals him to be. At all times, he is great, glorious, good, and gracious. Brothers and sisters, there has never been an Old Testament God and now today a New Testament God. He has always been the same. We believe in the God of the Bible. He has shown himself to be great, glorious, good, and gracious. The passage that we just read in Ephesians from Ephesians this morning, it doesn't just tell us what he's done. It reveals to us his nature. It reveals to us his attributes. It reveals to us what he's like I think most common when we think of his attributes or when we talk about or try to describe his attributes, most often theologians, I think this is the most common way, it's the most common way I've seen it, is incommunicable and communicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are those attributes that are reserved to God alone. Only he holds them. So like omniscience, God knows all things. That's only God. You may know people who think they know all things. You may be someone who thinks they're never wrong. But you've had to learn. You've had to acquire knowledge. He's always only ever known. That's God. That's an incommunicable attribute. We we don't share it in any way. A communicable attribute, on the other hand, is a trait that God has in some way shared with his creatures. Ways that in, in some way he has Given us the ability the ability to reflect it, so love everybody knows God is love that 's a common perspective from the Bible. God is love, and he has actually enabled us, his creation, to reflect that, and so we can be loving, we can express love to one another, even those who aren 't Christian can love in some broken way. This is just because of who we are now that 's the most common way but Several years ago, I was reading a book called You Can Change by Tim Chester, and I began to, as a result of this book, I began to, to recategorize or just rethink about the, the, the ways that I categorize these attributes, the way I think about these attributes. Because in some way, I don't run around, well, not in some way, I just don't run around using words in my mind like incommunicable or communicable, right? Like, do you? Maybe you do. I'm not trying to make fun of you, dude. Um We can talk later and I'll make fun of you then, but... Most of us, I think, probably don't. Most of us don't think in those terms. And so it makes it, I think, difficult for us to bring these theories, these theological precepts or uh, this theological information into the everyday life. Well, this book, in this book, Tim Chester makes the claim that at the heart of every sin struggle we have is a misunderstanding or disbelief about God in and, and one of four characteristics or one of four overarching um, attributes, if you will. These four truths are that he is great, that he is glorious, that he is good, and that he is gracious. That if we believe these things, we don't have to force change through behavioral changes like, we, uh, well, I want to save more money, so I'm going to start this behavior to be able to save more money or I want to be more generous. So I'm going to start this behavior of just giving money away. I'm not saying that that can't in some way produce some amount of change. God can use even the most broken things. But his point, his his position is that for change to naturally occur within us, if we would begin to believe that God is great, that God is glorious, that God is good and that God is gracious, change would happen from the inside out. And although it would still be difficult... It would still come with some measure of resistance. It wouldn't necessarily be easy. It would happen. Well, these truths, they, 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 I've just told you what they are. They've been come to, come to be called the four G's. And a number of other people have picked up on this and found it useful. But, but as I think about it, it enables me, as I've begun to categorize God's attributes in these ways, it's begun to enable me not just to have these theological categories, but they become very practical to my everyday life. And and, and so I'm not saying anything different than what others have said that have gone for generations before. The God of the Bible is the God who is. The way He's revealed Himself is the way that we are to see Him, to to approach Him, to know Him. But I I want us to look at this in this way, because I don't want us to just walk around here with knowledge and say, I know God is, and be able to use words like omniscience or uh, omnipresence or omnipotence and, and, and act like we, we, we got it all figured out when our life is falling apart. What, what I'd much rather understand is that we believe these things about God and they, and they change the way we act. So in, in this passage in Ephesus, there are a lot of things that we could point to. There are a lot of things that we could see that God has done. And we could, we, could, we could build a number of different lessons out of this. In fact, some have taken uh, uh, whole books just to describe each of the things that's going on here. But I just want us to ask one question of this text. What does it teach us about God? Do, do we see his greatness, his glory, his graciousness, his, or his goodness and his grace? Do, do we see it? At play here well, I'll give you a hint I think we do or else I wouldn't have written the sermon this way um, and we'll start with his greatness God is always great this speaks to his eternal attributes the the, the the personality traits the characteristics that distinguish God from man and set him above us as God and keep us where we are as his creation These eternal attributes, I've mentioned them in passing already. Omniscience, that's all knowing. He knows everything. um, He's omnipotent. He's all powerful. He can do all that he desires to do. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times and all places. He exists outside of time. He is not limited in time and space the way you are, the way I am. He is eternal. According to this passage in Ephesians, He's known you from before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light. Before there was any order brought out of the chaos of all the things that, as the spirit floated over the water and as God then calls out let there be light as he, as he brings the land up out from the water and he sets the, separates the sky and the, and the land as, as, he, as he separates the night and the day and he sets the sun, the moon, and the stars and the heavens. Before any of that was done he was and he knew you. Before the foundation of the world he was making decisions he was determining how things would go he was laying out a plan. He was predestining things. This is God in His, in His eternal presence. Before the first click of the clock, first tick tock of the clock, He was. This is who He is. He is sovereign over all things. He's doing all of this, it says, according to the purpose. Of his will. Look at it in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. Look at verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him, he says in verse 11, in him we've obtained an an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is sovereign. He sits over all things. He rules with authority. He is the one where where all authority finds its origin. This is not a God who is dependent on any of us in any way. Way, but in whom we are all dependent, even if we won't admit it. He isn't seeking our advice, he's not seeking anyone's advice. He is his own counsel, he has determined what should happen, what will happen. There's a, there's a psalm where it talks about that, that we make our plans, and he sits back and laughs. Because if our plan isn't in accordance with it, there's nothing we can, what can we do? He's God in the truest sense. He is God. Or as it was said, as he said himself through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45 verses five through six, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. God is great. He has always been great. But before we move on from his greatness, I think we need to take note of this passage. In this passage of the Trinitarian presence. So the Trinitarian reality that just is filled it's filled, overflowing. God the Father is present and He is doing all this work through Jesus Christ, His Son. In Him, He has chosen. In Him, he has, he has predestined for adoption. In Him, He has given us grace. In Him, we are redeemed. In Him, in Him, in Him, in Him. All in Christ. This is the distinguishing factor between this being a promise to the whole world and a promise to a particular people. The problem with the people on the video, the problem with people who don't approach God and know him. And see how great the word really reveals him to be. Is that they would read this and they would apply these things to themselves. And if I'm just good enough, then God will give me these things. Did you hear the one man who said, well, if you just obey the Ten Commandments and just measure up he has no idea what he needs god to do on his behalf through jesus christ the the one one person who said well i think if i just go do good i'll just do good things and hopefully they'll he doesn't even know he's talking about a trinity and they'll be good to me he's probably thinking of some polyistic polytheistic perspective that he doesn't even have a full understanding of there either but Just hopefully, hope hope they'll be good to me. Not understanding anything about the greatness of this God and how greatly He needs this great God to work on His behalf. But here's this Trinitarian perspective: God the Father working through Christ His Son and the Holy Spirit, sealing those of us who have been, who, who, who this is applied to, until we acquire possession of it. This God is great there is nothing higher than him there is nothing over him there is nothing above him every ounce of authority finds its fi- finds its source in him we believe our god was is and always will be great but father would you help us in our unbelief i don't know that we live that way every day do we do you He is. That's what the Bible shows him to be. God is always glorious. This is the revelation of his greatness. Let me distinguish these two for just a second. John Piper talks about the glory of God in this way. He says, The glory of God is the going public of his infinite worth. We might just as easily say, The glory of God is the going public of his greatness. So God can be great and we never have a chance to know it if he doesn't make it known. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, an, another, uh, another great theologian, wrote a book, uh, Great Doctrines of the Bible. It's actually three volumes. I would commend it to you if you like to read those kind of things. The glory of God, he writes, the glory of God is the biblical way of describing his greatness, his splendor, his majesty. We read of the glory of God filling the house the temple and the glory of god being manifested in dim vision to certain people this means that they had some conception of the greatness the splendor the majesty the might of his being imagine that night on the uh, in the field as the shepherds were watching their flock at night i know it's not christmas but it's okay we apply this passage what happened An angel appeared in the sky. The glory of the Lord shone around them. His majesty, his excellence, his greatness was made known to them. What did they do? They cowered. They were scared. They were were in fear. And everything that's happening here, everything that's happening in this passage from Ephesians, he is doing it to the praise of his glorious grace. He is showing us how great he is by the magnificence of his power and his plan. None of this is something that we could accomplish on our own. None of this is something that we could do by our own might or our own power. None of this is something we even understand needs to be done. If we're to have the hope of heaven, if we're to enjoy the inheritance of eternal life, we don't have this knowledge except that he give us this knowledge. We don't have this perspective of him except that he make this perspective known. God is great, and he has always been showing us his greatness by revealing his glory. As it, says, it was saying, it said about Jesus Christ, as he put flesh on and dwelt among us, we have known his glory, glory of the one and only. And then he stood on a mountain with Peter, James, and um, John. Stands on a mountain, and it says that he began to shine with this bright light. I always picture this like lightning type of light shining off of him. His glory was revealed. They understood something about God in that moment. They understood something about Jesus Christ in that moment. And it would be as a result of that, that when he was standing in in front of them in the flesh, as he was standing in front of them in the flesh, the resurrected Lord, they would worship him because they saw the glory of God. In, and on and through him, see, God can be great; he is great he doesn 't need us to know it for him to be great, and he could have been great all along, and none of us know it at the moment that Adam and Eve fell, at the moment that they rebelled and, and went their own way, he could have sent them from the garden he didn 't have to clothe them he didn 't have to do anything on their behalf. He could have let creation just go to itself and he could have been the deist God that deists say exists. This great God with all this power, the one who could say, let there be light and he could step away and just let us to ourselves. He would be great and we would never know it. Thank God that he is great and he is glorious. That he is revealing his glory, that he is revealing his greatness as, as expressed by his glory. We believe We believe our God was, is, and always will be great and glorious. God is always good. This speaks to His moral or ethical being. Wayne Grudem, uh, in his Systematic Theology, writes, he defines it this way, the goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. In this passage from Ephesians, we see that God's goodness is is depicted in His saving people. He's doing a good work, as as we would estimate, right? I mean, who doesn't agree that it's good that He saved people from sin? That's a good thing. That's a good work. But His goodness is evident in more than just the things He does. It is evident in who He is. In fact, the reason He does good works is because... He is good. Good good people do good things. Bad people do bad things. It's just the way it works. And so when Jesus came, was approached by the rich young ruler who said, hey, good teacher. He's like, well, why are you calling me good? There's only one who's good. That's God. You see, Jesus understands that. He's teaching this. He, he, He gets it. God does good things because he is, by his very nature, good. It is why what he does is good. That means everything he does is good. I think in this passage it becomes most evident in the way he brings salvation. Certainly, he comes to this place where he says, he chose you. In verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Holy meaning distinct, separate, distinct from the world. Um, blameless, without fault, before him. Now, I think if we're honest for just a minute, there's none of us that would make the claim that I'm no, I, I'm without fault. I've never sinned. I've never done anything wrong. There's none of us that could make the claim that we on our own, by our own nature, are just Naturally distinct from the rest of the world, he did this he chose us for this this is good, good good news right This is a good work that God is doing. but how did he make that happen How, how did that come to be like how did he how did this choice how, how could it possibly happen you, you've probably heard this illustration before you've probably heard this 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 thought line of thinking before, but if if he's the judge making a choice about whether someone is holy and blameless or whether someone is innocent or guilty or not, and the person is clearly guilty and the judge says innocent, well, nobody wants to say that judge is a good judge. In fact, that judge probably doesn't keep, well, maybe in our world he keeps his job, but you remember just a few, uh, I think it was a year or two ago, Springfield was in an uproar because the judge was too lenient on somebody's punishment, that a drunk driver that had gotten in an accident and harmed or, or potentially killed some people. Because that's not good judgment. So how is it possible that God would look at us, choose us for holiness and blamelessness, put that title on us? We see that in verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. God didn't just ignore our sin because He's good. He didn't just sweep it under the rug because He is good. If He had ignored our sin, if He hadn't dealt with it, if He would just looked past it, then He wouldn't be, couldn't be good. It's because of His goodness that He doesn't just overlook sin, that He actually deals with it, that He actually pays the, the debt that our sin occurs. If we're going to be called holy and blameless then that debt has to be paid. And because God is good, that's exactly what He did. Because there's nothing that's going to change the fact that God is good. It means that He's completely pure, righteous, holy, just, that He does everything right. There's no sin in Him, no darkness, no shifting shadow. He is the standard of what is good and all He does is good one final aspect of this goodness that I think we ought to consider is that it's always desirable. <laughs> who doesn't want this passage to be applied to them? I want inheritance. I want grace lavished over me. I, I want holiness and blamelessness. I, 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 want, I want that. Who, who doesn't? Who wouldn't? It's easy to agree with when we like what it is. It's easy to agree with when it fits our perspective, when it works out in a way that feels good to us and feels right and just to us. It's not so easy to agree with God's goodness if we don't like what he's doing. See, that's where we struggle, isn't it? I'm learning a lesson. It's one I've been learning for a long time. I, I've, in these past months, and it's been going a little longer than months, but in these past months, I, I've really been able to see it more clearly and, and, and put some words to it. I've been able to identify this lesson uh, in a more clarifying way for myself. And that I'm learning to desire His good will over my perception of what his good will should be. I want I'm learning, I wish I was there. I'm learning to want what he wants more than what I want. Because he's great and he's glorious and he's good. Well, what I'm learning is that his will for me is more desirable than my own will for me. I I think I have a good plan. I think I have good intentions. I I think what I want is a good thing. But I'm so limited in what I can know and what I can perceive and actually what I can accomplish. And I'm not great. I'm not glorious and well, let's just be honest. Apart from Christ, I'm I'm not even good. It's tough to want what God wants. When it kind of confronts us, when it doesn't match up with how we measure things. But we're fighting here. We're fighting to believe that God was, is, and always will be great was, is, and always will be glorious. And he was, is, and always will be good. Lord, help us in our unbelief. Help us. Now well, imagine, I just want you to imagine for just a minute if that's where we stopped, like this was the end. Imagine a, a God who is always great, who is always glorious, and who is always Good. Imagine coming face to face with that God if that's all he is. Now, I know I've already touched on grace, and so we we have a tendency to run to this place and rest in grace, but, but let's just stop short of his grace. A great, glorious, good God is a God you should run and seek to hide from, even though it's impossible. Because he's great, there is nothing you can do to stand against him because he is glorious. He has proven that over and over. None will have an excuse. And because he is good and we are not, how in the world could we stand in his presence? How do I think that I even deserve to be there? I'm grateful. I'm grateful that he's more than these three. See, the reason we don't have to run and hide, the reason we don't have to cower in fear, the reason that we can expect access into the throne room of this God, the reason that we can be received by him, that we can be accepted by him. And we we got our language wrong, right? We talk about accepting God, accepting Christ or whatever. No, 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 no. Has he accepted you? The reason we can accept, expect to be accepted in his presence is because this great and glorious and good God is always gracious. God, he he has done for us and withheld from us what, what he has done for us, what we don't deserve. And he has withheld from us what we do deserve. It speaks to his, his compassion, his mercy, his love, his, his proactive working on our behalf, even in spite of our rebellious attitudes and nature toward him. See, God can be, can be great and we never know it, but by his glory we have come to see his greatness. The whole world sees it, the Bible tells us. There will be no one that has an excuse, the Bible tells us. God can be good. And we can never know any of that goodness except through judgment and condemnation. But by his own gracious nature, he has given us what we don't deserve while taking on himself what we do deserve. The Michael Horton, uh, in his, uh, I don't even remember the title of it, uh, The Christian Faith, A the Systematic Theology for Pilgrims on the Way. There's a title for you. He writes... While a theology of glory presumes to scale the walls of God's heavenly chamber, a theology of the cross will always recognize that although we cannot reach God, he can reach us and has done so in his preached and written word in which the incarnate word, that's Jesus, the incarnate word is wrapped as in swaddling clothes. Oh, man, we talk about this great God. We should look at this great God. We should understand the glory of this God. We should be able to think of his majestic transcendence. We should be able to consider his sovereignty. We should be able to be humbled beneath his eternal attributes, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. We should see him as great. But if that's all he is, how do we ever get to him? How do we get from here to there? We can't, but he can get to us, and he has. And over and over in this passage from Ephesians, we see he's done it. In him, he has chosen. In Christ, he has chosen us for holiness and blamelessness. In Christ, he has predestined us for adoption so that we can have this inheritance. In Christ, he has redeemed us through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ. See, we can't get to God, but in his grace he has come to us. Because God is gracious, (laughs) or because this is true, we no longer have to cower in fear, we don't have to run and hide. We can see that in spite of ourselves, we have been accepted, that we have access into His presence. Today, if you're holy and blameless, it's not because you're acting holy and blameless. It's because in Christ He's made you holy and blameless. Today, if you're expecting an inheritance from the Father, it's not because you deserve an inheritance from the Father. It's because in Christ He has ensured that you're going to have an inheritance from God the Father. See, we believe our God was, is, and always will be great, glorious, good, and gracious. But I want to finish, I just want to close with with four quick thoughts. These aren't just theological concepts. These aren't just theological ideas, practical points, communicable and incommunicable attributes. They matter for everyday life. They matter for the moment you're sitting here. They matter for the moment you get up and walk out of here. They matter for tomorrow morning when you wake up. They matter for Wednesday afternoon when you're sitting in your office or wherever it is you'll be and wondering, what is this all about? Because God is great, there is no one more trustworthy. You can trust Him. You can count on Him. No one more able, no one more... Capable of fulfilling their promises. No one who knows better. No one who can accomplish more. No one one who can rule over all things the same way he does. Ah, there's certainly people who seek to usurp his authority. There's certainly people who seek to, to abuse authority. But God is ultimate authority. And there is no one more trustworthy. Because God is glorious, there is no one more worthy of worship. This is the right and natural response. When, when human nature is working in the way it's intended to worship, in the way it was designed to worship, before we fell from, from glory, before we fell from the glory of God, this was the way it was to be. God would exhibit His glory for us to see, and we would na- respond naturally just wanting to glorify Him, wanting to worship Him. he's shown us these things. He's shown us his greatness in his glory so that now we know. And now, even now, in our redeemed state, we can worship him because there is no one more worthy in everything you do. From getting out of bed to eating an ice cream cone to standing and preaching a sermon. Everything you do can be done in response to His glory in order to see Him glorified. It can be done as an act of worship. This is the most natural, the most right response when new human nature is working. Because God is good, there is no greater gain than Him and His will. Oh, we pursue all kinds of things. We, we, we run after all kinds of junk. The, the world packages its stuff in nice shiny packages and, and they advertise it as if it's the answer to our problems. Over and over and over, these things fail us. They leave us disappointed. They leave us wanting something else. They leave us thinking, well, it's not just this thing. It's something on top of it. So we live in debt. We we pursue things like relationships and occupations and seek satisfaction from possessions and money. And over and over and over, we heap up this indebtedness. And we find over and over and over, we're not happier. We're not better. We're not satisfied. God's the greatest gain. Get him. There is no better. You get him and you get His will, and there is nothing else more satisfying. because God is gracious. He gives himself to us as a gift. He gives us all of this, his greatness, his glory, his goodness. He gives it to us as a gift. You don't have to earn this from him. You don't have to present your, you don't have to bring your presentation, your PowerPoint with your 10 points of why you deserve some blessing from God. In Christ, he has blessed us with everything. Spiritual blessing. Not some, not one or two. Every spiritual blessing. He, he didn't give it to us because we deserved it. He didn't give it to us because we earned it. He didn't give it to us because he was obligated to. He gave it as a gift because that's what the gracious God does. So, for, the Jew, for, for you that have trusted him, so, so for you that are trusting him and growing in your faith, rest. Is rest. Lay your deadly doing down. You do not have to present an image before him. He knows you. And every work that you try to offer him that's done in order to to impress him, that's a selfish work. Lay your deadly doing down. And and, and then, do everything you do can do everything that you do do it to glorify him your life will be radically changed and even those things that are duty will seem like delight for the for for, for you that have never trusted him for you that have have never understood never cared to know that are sitting here today Confronted with this great, glorious, good, and gracious God. Let me encourage you to trust him today. So that when you're confronted with his glory, you won't have any reason to cower in fear. Because you will know that in Christ, you are accepted. That you have access. That you can stand in his presence. And you can enjoy his inheritance. Would you trust in him and him alone? Let's pray.